0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 13. Let's, uh, let's dive right into Romans 13. Romans is the sixth book in your New Testament, uh, right after the book of Acts. Go to Romans 13. Let's start at verse 11. Besides this, I'll explain the context in a moment. Since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Stop there. Paul says, wake up, sleepyheads. Stop stumbling around like sleepwalkers. This is a day to wake up. It is one day closer to the completion of your salvation. As we state in the notes that you either downloaded from online or you got when you walked in, wake up because Jesus' return is near. All right, let's practice being wide awake. All right, we're going to practice being wide awake. I'm going to name some authority figures. And when I name the authority figures, you, of course, will notice them all. But I want you to wake up and stand up to attention only when I say the name Jesus. All right, so you're going to jump up when I say the name Jesus and stand at attention. Ready? Get ready. Get your stuff down. Get ready. Grandma. That's an important one, it's not quite there. The government. Puppies, don't stand up. Puppies are wonderful, they're not Jesus. Jesus, there you go, all right, very good. Jesus, all right, sit back down. The president, Uh, the sheriff, Jesus. Nicely done, very good, everybody. All right, have a seat, very good, you got it, all right. The context in Romans 13, now look at this, context in Romans 13, I told you I'd mention that, is all about obeying earthly authorities, things like governments and grandmas and puppies. Um, But here, just as you pivoted to stand up, the text pivots, okay, the text in Romans 13 pivots right here at verse 11, and it says, wake up because the ultimate authority is coming. Jesus is the ultimate authority, amen? And every hour we draw closer to the glorious day of Jesus' return. Before we had children of our own, Jenna and I used to house sit for friends, uh, especially friends that had kids, and, um, and we got to learn about children before we had our own. And I learned something really important. We were house sitting for some friends. They had three kids. And I learned uh, that on the days they have to get up for school, it is a beating to wake those slugs up and get them out of bed. It's amazing. I mean, it really was a chore to get them to crawl out of bed. But, but, that first time we ever did this, Saturday came, when nobody had to get up early. And at 6.15 a.m., this demonic child (laughs) was in on top of me saying, Good morning! Wake up! And I pried my eyes open, and it it was John, the little second grader, that I had to pull out of bed with a backhoe at 7.45 the day before, And he's on my bed. And I said something like, John, I couldn't even get you out of bed yesterday. Why are you bugging me at 6.15? And this evil child laughed at me. He laughed. And he said, "Ha ha, we're not stupid. We know what day it is. And I opened my eyes and I looked at him and I said, well, you're not that smart, buddy. Your pants are on backwards. Um, But backwards pants are not. The kid had a good point, right? Children seem to know when it's a day that you need to wake up. Now, remember, in Romans, Paul uses this term salvation in conjunction with three different truths. Salvation is the, the word we saw there in verse 11. There are three different theological truths that are, that are tied to this um, one is justification. Justification is a really important theological word that appears in your Bible. It, it just simply means being made right, justified, being made right with God. That always occurs by faith alone, in Jesus alone, by God's grace alone. So being made right with God by faith, that's justification. Other times, salvation means sanctification. It's the process, the steps we take of being made holy every day in our walk with God. Yes, it's awesome. And then thirdly is glorification. And that is the permanent completion of of our salvation. We're, We're in heaven, all sin is removed, and we have glorified bodies with God forever. The context here makes it clear that Paul is referring to glorification, but that doesn't mean the other aspects of salvation aren't involved. As we're going to see, what we do now directly affects what our glory is going to be like then. Paul says, wake up, because Jesus' return in glory is near. This is the time everybody needs to get out of bed. And, of course, that sparks a question. I know, I know you're asking in your second-grade voice, why wake up for Jesus? I mean, why not just sit back and wait for him to come? Great question, John. Uh, Martin McDonald of our pulpit team wrote a great answer just for you. Look what Martin wrote. He said, When Jesus returns, the world as it exists is finished. There will be no more opportunities to be a blessing, shine the light of Jesus in the world, be a witness, glorify God, be obedient, etc. For those Christians who live with their pants on backwards, just like the unsaved world, there will be much regret over lost opportunities and missed rewards. Close quote. He's right. I would simply add this, Scripture teaches that because we are justified by faith in Jesus, we can be sanctified. Now, in Romans 13, that's described, by the way, sanctification in Romans 13 is described as being clothed with Christ. More more on that later. If we are clothed with Christ, here in our regular sanctification process, we will receive greater rewards when we are glorified. That's why we need to wake up. Those theological truths are really important for grasping this section of Romans. And there's some grammar that we have to grasp as well. Don't groan. Grammar's awesome. All right? This is really cool. This, this really is cool. God uses a really wonderful device here that reminds us that the practical steps he wants us to take are not performed by our own strength. Look at this. This is awesome. Look. Look at the slide. Every imperative verb in, in this text, that means every, every statement that we're to take as a precept for our living. Every imperative verb is coupled with an indicative verb. As something that indicates what God has provided, some privilege he has given. The indicative verb reminds us of a, of a privilege from God, the provision that causes us to rely on God's grace, on his spirit for doing his precept. It's true of every section of Romans 12 to 15. Uh, let, let, let me show you. We're, we're just going to cover leading up to where we are today. So we started this study in Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 through 2. The imperative, the precept, is present your bodies, right, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Well, how can you do that? Well, because of the indicative, what God has provided. View the mercies of God. In view of the mercies of God, because God has shown mercy, I can present myself to Him. Um, 12, 3 through 11 says, serve the Lord enthusiastically. How? Because God indicates that He's given things. Because God's given to you, therefore you can give, you can serve. Um, the, The last half of chapter 12, overcome evil with what, everybody? Good, overcome evil with good. How can we do that? Well, because we have hope. And because we know God will repay. God's going to repay. Chapter 13, the first part, give to each what is due to them. How can I possibly do that? Well, it's because God establishes all those authorities. Since God indicates that He establishes authority, I can, imperative, I can give them what is due. Verses 8 through 10, owe nothing but love. How is that possible? Because love fulfills the law. God has fulfilled all of my need under His law. And because of that, I can give nothing but love. And then, what we just read, uh, wake up is the first imperative. The second and the bigger imperative we'll get to in a minute is put on the Lord Jesus. How can I do that? Because God has indicated that I know the time. It is time to wake up. The privilege is that God tells us time is short, and that is a gift. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it's a gift. Let me just give you this example. Totally weird, unrealistic way to consider this, okay? Just thought experiment. Suppose you're shopping, and somehow God reveals to you that in 24 hours, the world's going to go crazy, and everything is going to be shut down. You're not going to be able to go to a store, a restaurant, or a store. I know this is insane, but just imagine. You're not going to be able to go anywhere, no service provider, nothing, for, for weeks, Okay, you're shopping, you got 24 hours, and God reveals to you the time is short. You're going to be cut off. Now, what are you going to do with your 24 hours? Tell me. Raise your hands, tell me. What are you going to do with your 24 hours? What are you going to do? Yes. Buy toilet paper, buy toilet paper of course. It's the answer to everything. Large lizards in Georgia, buy toilet paper. Murder hornets, buy toilet paper. Yes, right. Okay, after you've bought toilet, which is important, after you've bought toilet paper, what are you going to do? Yes. Buy snack food, <laughs> spoken like a true teenager who could eat all day long and gain nothing. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's true, though. Yeah, buy food uh, or snack food. Yeah, what else? What are you going to do? What do you got? What do you, come on. Yes. Yeah, let me hear. We went to Six Flags the day before. Went to Six Flags the day before. That's actually brilliant. That's a great idea. Um, the, uh, I, somebody in the last hour said, uh, go visit my mom, which would be a really good one. You know, while I can, go, go visit mom. Um, You see the point, right? It's a privilege when you know the time is short. It indicates that time being short indicates what we should actually see as imperative. And the imperative verb, the precept that goes with that is wake up. Can you imagine a kid not waking up on the important day, on a day of freedom? It's been known to happen. Classic example occurred on Christmas Day when I was five years old. I wanted nothing for Christmas but a flying O bicycle. I waited for what seemed years for Christmas Eve to come. I talked to every Santa. I prayed for a flying O. I left pictures of flying O bicycles in my mom's dresser. When Christmas Eve came I was I was nearly ill with anticipation. in fact in fact I, I'm pretty sure I was rude to our extended family. There's always a huge Broderick family Christmas of my dad and all his six thousand brothers and sisters and their kids and, and they all give gifts and, and it's wonderful but I think I was very unappreciative because those were just appetizers and I was looking for the main thing we got back home and I just laid awake in bed I just was waiting and waiting to try and make Christmas morning come and it finally did Christmas morning finally broke and I couldn't wake up couldn't I, I was out I remember I remember this I'm five years old and I remember hearing my family it was like they were at the end of a very long tunnel And they were talking to me, and they kept shaking me. They still laugh about this. Apparently, I finally got up, and I walked right through the kitchen, right past the flying O bicycle that was there, never saw it. My dad swears that I even steadied myself by putting my hand on it as I walked by and didn't even know it. I didn't know it. I sat down, and about five minutes later, I finally woke up enough that I saw the object of my joy, the flying O bicycle. I just could not wake up. As ridiculous as that sounds, I missed the thing I was longing for because I didn't wake up. I was so focused on my hope for future reward, I didn't do the things it takes to be prepared to wake up and enjoy it. And that is what it can be like for people, like many of us, who are really excited about our coming glory, salvation, our glorification... Don't get me wrong. We should be thrilled, excited about Jesus' return. But what happens is we can forget to work on our sanctification to to be clothed with Christ every day in the here and now. So God says to us this morning, wake up. It's not that you're going to lose your bike. You're not going to lose your bike. God bought it for you. It's not that you're going to lose your justification. Jesus purchased it for you. You need to wake up because you're missing all the fun. You're snoozing out of the tree. You're missing the sanctified party. And in our lack of preparation, get this, in our lack of preparation now, we are diminishing the experience of our rewards to come. With that in mind, I would like to propose an interrogative to go with God's imperative and indicative. In case you don't know, kids, an interrogative is a question. Here's my question. What does that look like? In, in light of our coming glorification, how does one practically wake up now and put on Jesus? The answer is is in the rest of our text. Go back to our text, verse 11. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near. So let's discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Here are the ways to practice spiritual wakefulness. First thing, remember who you are. Look, the text says, now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. What does that tell us? That he's addressing believers. These are Christians. The first step is to remember you are a Christian. Some mornings, I don't know if you're like me, I I wake up and I wonder who I really am, right? Especially when I'm coming out of a really deep sleep. I don't mean just wondering where I am, that ha- but just even who, who am I, right? Our Christian lives are often like that. In fact, many of us could star in a remake of Night of the Living Dead. And right now, as the Lord tugs your heart with his call to wake up, you stir and you mumble, who am I? Let me answer that for you. If you have trusted Jesus, you are a believer. As the Apostle Paul likes to say, we are children of the light. Here's a graphic example. Let me show you a graphic example. Acts chapter 19. In Acts 19 this idea of who believes in Jesus is very painfully brought home. Um, Acts 19 is in the city of Ephesus. Lots of real tension in that city. A lot going on. And, And this you can see the tension here. Verse 13. Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and prevailed against them, so they ran out of that house naked and wounded. These non-believers couldn't answer the spiritual question, who are you? Unable to answer, they get beaten up. It's made graphically clear in Ephesus that there is a difference between spiritual or religious people and those who believe in Jesus. The priests didn't know Jesus as Savior. They used his name like a charm, and it got them humiliated, exposed, naked. And this, by the way, this event wakes people up. When it becomes clear who belongs to God and who doesn't, people are aroused. Look at the results. Very very next verse. Here's the results. Verse 17. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers, talk about Christians now, came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. All the junk people were trapped in. All the wickedness and sorcery and nonsense. They wake up. And they do away with it. You don't need junk when you remember who you are. Which takes us to a necessary but painful moment. What do I need to throw into my personal bonfire? What, what vanities are incongruous with your life as a believer in Jesus? Hmm? I asked a few people this. I had to do it through uh, electronically because we can't get close right now. But I asked a few folks that question. and These were their responses. Look at this. I said, what what vanities are incongruous with your life as a believer in Jesus? These were the answers I got. My pride. My anger. It's not good anger. The bitter grumpiness at the world. Sexual activities I know are wrong. Yelling at my kids just because I'm frustrated. Lies. Gossip, said one person. Said, Wayne, when you mentioned your sin of gossip in the last sermon, my stomach churned. We must wake up. And the process starts with being able to answer the very important spiritual question, who are you? Look, Acts 19 makes it real clear. The ones who know Jesus wake up. The others continue to take meetings. Go back to Romans 13, verse 12. Go to verse 12. The night is nearly over, and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here's the next, next aspect of awakening. Remember what time it is. In Rome, they had the most accurate clock in the world. Uh, the first century Romans prided themselves on knowing the exact hour and minute from the huge uh, water clock in the forum. They had a great water clock machine there while the rest of the world pretty much only had sundials. But Paul says to these Romans, look spiritually, you're in danger of not even having sundials. You don't even know the difference between day, uh, night and day, much less the exact water clock hour. Real quickly, I want to show you a parallel passage. First Thessalonians chapter five is exactly parallel to what we're studying here in Romans 13. Look, First Thess 5, uh, starting in verse one. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, "There's peace and security," then sudden destruction will come on them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you're not in the darkness, brothers, for that they to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people said to Thessalonica as to Rome. Paul says, wake up. How? How? Remember what time it is. It's time to fight. That's why armor is mentioned in both texts. God says, put on your armor. This is a war zone. A few of my former students have gone on to serve as pilots and airmen and soldiers, marines, sailors, firefighters. And there's one thing that all these careers have in common. One thing that all of them have in common. They can be awakened from a dead sleep and called to immediate action. They can be sound asleep, and when they hear scramble or battle station, they they have to jump out of bed and get their gear on. That's the image that Paul's using in these texts. All right, so kids, kids only, kids only, wherever you are, home, here, whatever, kids, we're going to practice. Uh, here's what I want you to do. Kids, I want you to find a space on the floor or on some chairs, and I want you to, I want you to spread out across the floor or across the chairs, and let's pretend to go to sleep, okay? Uh, let's be like really exhausted firefighters. Find a place. There you go. Find a place. And I want you to pretend to go to sleep. And if you would, let's, uh, let's, snore. let's snore like firefighters. They're the worst snorers in the world. I mean, it's, uh, I'm sorry, guys. It's true. All right. Ready? Let me hear you snore. Can I hear it? that's hey that's not bad okay all right now when you hear me say the word scramble stay asleep when you hear me say the word scramble i want you to get up and grab your gear and and get ready to fight okay that's what that's what you're gonna do grab your imaginary gear all right ready okay here we go you're snoring i hear your story all right sleepy 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 all right scramble scramble get up get up have you got your gear very good that was that give him a hand that was really nice well done kids that was great Now, settle down while we review. How do I practice spiritual wakefulness? Remember who you are. Remember what time it is. It's time to get up and fight, to scramble. And thirdly, remember how to act. That's the headline on the right side of our notes. It's the point in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. There are negatives and a positive in this idea of remembering how to act. The negatives come in three classes of two each. Uh, Let me show you a really interesting way, I think, to classify these. You can look up here. Uh, Intemperance is a word we don't use very often anymore. Our forefathers made this word up for the idea of public sins. Uh, Body jokes, drunkenness, those things are wrong. They're scripturally wrong. Out of control behavior is not how we're to act. We're not supposed to be intemperate. Uh, in impurity designates uh, personal sins, giving into sensual thoughts, uh, sinning sexually. These things are impure. They, they are the actions of a moral sleepyhead. Uh, invasion describes possessive sins, attacking others, desiring their things. The, these invasions are not how we're supposed to act. In fact, these things are described in Romans as being completely tied to our sin nature, to our flesh uh, look at our notes. Dr. Griffith Thomas brilliantly spoke to this. Almost 100 years ago, uh, Dr. Griffith Thomas said this, the Christian is not to fight on his own strength, but commit himself to him who has won the victory. The, the, the flesh is referred to as the seat of sin in earlier chapters of Romans, and no provision of any sort is to be made for what Godet calls the toilet of the soul. That's perfect. We are to say no to the flesh on every occasion and occupy ourselves solely with the Lord Jesus Christ in the personal appropriation of faith. Close quote. Those are the negative aspects of remembering how to act. The positive actually comes first in verse 13 walk with decency. When I make no provision for the flesh and I rely upon God's Spirit, I inevitably behave properly. It's not that I'm a robot. I'm myself, but I'm myself as I act the way God would have me act. Again, Griffith Thomas summarizes this so very well. Look look what he said. And by the way, I'm told, I'm not old enough to have ever heard him, but I'm told that that, uh, he had a beautiful British accent, very educated sounding, and he said things like this. Let us appropriate Jesus and put him between ourselves and our foes of flesh, world, and devil. Let there be but contact of the soul with Christ, Committal of the soul to Christ, and control of the soul by Christ, and there will be safety to self, victory over foes, and glory to God. What? Amen? Uh, as a toddler, one of my children had a marked tendency to stand up in his high chair, nearly killing himself on a number of occasions. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, he was a really bright kid. Anyway, um, so here's what we did. We, we had to make no provision for that. So every time we put the kid in a high chair... One of us would distract him, while the other would get underneath and untie his shoelaces and tie his shoes to the high chair. Yeah, mm-hmm. with double knots. It was brilliant. Kid never could, could yeah, he couldn't get up, couldn't kill himself anymore, right? But that isn't all we did. That negative is not the only thing we did. We we also talked to him all through the meal. We related to him. We gave him our attention, our affection. So there was no need for him to to try to get up out of that chair. And, And all that positive plus negative combination worked. He quit trying to swan dive on the tile and we grew closer together. Listen, God loves you. He wants you to remember how to act. He wants to save you from these idiotic swan dives that are tearing up your life. So he says, make no provision for the flesh. Tie your laces. And he looks you right in the face, and he offers his complete interaction, his complete affection. Walk with decency, because God is the great father. He is right beside your high chair. Don't flop around and miss the chance to bond with him. Okay, now that you're awake, let's get dressed. Main imperative in the passage, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Put on Jesus. That's the command. Get dressed. How many of you at some point in your life have had that horrible nightmare where you realize in the nightmare that you're walking around and you're not clothed? You raise your hands. Come on. be. It's, no one can see you but me. All right. All right. Okay, good. It's a net tear. Usually it's a school, right? You're like, i oh, walking through the hallway. Oh, dear. Right? That's the image here. If you don't get dressed in Jesus, you are exposed. Make no provision for the flesh. Leave no part exposed. Think of it like this. Ladies' clothing right now is fairly revealing. Uh, That's the style at this point, which is fine. But I've noticed something very fascinating. When I walk into a gathering somewhere out in the community, when I go to meetings as I have recently, the funniest thing happens. Somebody will introduce me as a pastor. And suddenly, suddenly, women all around the room start wrapping up. It's hilarious. They're pulling their skirts down. They're putting coats on. Why do they do that? Because when you're exposed, it can be embarrassing to be around a person who's of the day. Jesus is called the morning star in Scripture. So let's suppose he, the Lord of the day, appeared physically right now. He's with us spiritually. He appeared physically right now. What would you What would I be desperately trying to cover? Our our physical clothes are fine. But what parts of our souls would we be trying to cover up as God's light makes us realize we are exposed? Instead of unsuccessfully throwing on layers in a panic, which is only funny, let's talk about what it means to be spiritually dressed every day. Verse 14 declares the soul's attire is to put on Jesus recent statement by a writer that I enjoy, uh, uh, Janie Cheney, said uh, this, only He, talking about Jesus, only He can lead us out of ourselves and into the glorious light of full surrender and inexpressible joy, the essence of eternal life. The essence of eternal life. Only Jesus can lead us into the light. So let's walk through this idea as it develops in the New Testament. How does Scripture describe being clothed with Christ and thus being comfortable in the light? First, We're clothed with Jesus in pedigree. The end of Galatians chapter 3 speaks really boldly to this. Look at this, Galatians 3, the very end. Through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, get this, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise if you have been identified with Jesus, then you are clothed with Christ. Specifically, you have become, you become part of his unified family. It doesn't matter what your background is. Slave, Greek, female, male, whatever. It, you're now part of Jesus' family. And you are the fulfillment of Abraham's promise. Because of Jesus, here's what that means. It means that because of Jesus, your pedigree is now tied to the promise given to Abraham. Which means you are related to the one great parent. God the Father himself. Look up here at the slide. This is an award, this beautiful award, best, uh, best of breed. It was won at the recent Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show uh, by a, uh, a Scotty owned by my friend, my friend, one of my former students, Pilar. Uh, with that wind, uh, their, their uh, Scottish Terrier became the most decorated Scotty sire in America. And of course, that brings up the question you're asking in your mongrel voice, uh, Yip Wolf Roof Bark, which we all knew means, Why does winning a dog show matter? Great question, Fido. Thank you for asking. It matters because the people who raise dogs care very, very much about pedigree. You see, the number of national champions and grand national champions in a dog's pedigree determines how much every new pup is worth. With that win at Westminster, my friends can now fetch very high prices for their dog's stud services. And and, uh, no, I I don't have time. Ask your parents about about stud services. I, I don't have time to explain that. Here's what I do have time to say. My dear fellow pups, my dear fellow pups, your pedigree was rewritten when you received Jesus. You are now priceless because you were of the line of the grand universal champion God himself. All God's people said... Amen. A Christian soul is attired with Jesus in pedigree. Next we discover the idea of being clothed with Jesus in practice. Look again at verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus, and then by parallel, gives us a little insight into how to do that, don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a very practical statement uh, to put it in its full context, it's building on a great theological declaration that occurred back in Romans chapter 6. The theological declaration was this So you two consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Consider, it said, think through. You're to put on Jesus, not your old flesh. In practice, how do we put on Jesus? by thinking through who we are. It's it's in the word. Look, look, the original term in Greek is loizome. Loizome is your fancy word for the day. Boys and girls, you get to say loizome on the count of three. One, two, three, loizome, very good. Loizome originally was a word from the agora, from the the marketplace. It was a word for very careful accounting. But, but, the Greek philosophers took loizome, and they, and they employed this word in a way that stuck. And it was, the, it was the meaning it had for Paul when he penned Romans. It means to carefully think through what is true. What is true. Um, uh, Henry Heidland explains. Uh, he said, since Plato, 500 years before, or 400 years before Paul, uh, loisome is the typical term for the non-emotional thinking of the philosopher seeking apprehension of something objectively present. Uh, put in normal human language, that means thinking through what is true. Since I recently brought up a Farside cartoon, um, many people began to send them to me. A friend sent me one specifically to illustrate Loisame. This is fantastic. Here's Loisame. Guy gets up in the morning, he wakes up, and he has a huge sign on the wall of his bedroom. First your pants, then your shoes. Right. Very good. Not to remember what's real. When you're waking up, you've got to think things through. Look, we've got to start each day considering, thinking through how we are to be clothed with Christ. We've got to apprehend the objective present so that we can live our lives as people who are clothed with Christ. One of our church members um, shared a photo of his morning coffee preparation the other day. Okay, now this is, a guy, uh, this is a guy who takes sugar in his coffee and he has a particular routine. He puts the sugar in the cup first and then he pours in the coffee. He was about to pour in the coffee when it seemed that the sugar was a little bit close to him. This is why that's what he had done. <clears throat> that's a problem. And that is a proof of our universal need for coffee. No, our universal need to stop and think when we're waking up. After all, our our preparation each day is not just for us. Think think about it. When we think, when we put on Christ, it has a positive effect on everybody around us. Again, my teammate Martin nailed this. I I like this note he sent me so much I put it in your notes. Martin wrote me and he said, Wayne, our clothes can tell the world who we are. Soldier, mail deliverer, athlete, dancer, businessman, etc., Further, those clothes carry a responsibility to represent well those who are identified with the clothes. A mailman who kicks a dog brings shame on all mailmen. Finally, the clothes one puts on influence one's actions. For example, one does not garden in a ballroom dress, nor does one wallow in filth while clothed in Christ. Close quote. Everyone's crazy about a sharp-dressed man or woman, and there is no clothing as sharp as Christ. The soul's attire is Jesus. We're to be, we're to be clothed with Jesus in, in pedigree because we're believers. In practice because we are thinkers. We think through as we wake up. And in permanence because we know that we are people that will be made perfect. So says 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like you to read with me. 1 Corinthians 15. Join me on the underlined text please. Listen. Paul writes, I'm telling you a mystery. Uh, the words "musterion," it means something that it doesn't mean Agatha Christie that I saw someone reading earlier. It means, uh, uh, it means something that was always there but not fully understood. So I'm going to tell you something's always there, not fully understood. And now he's going to talk about falling asleep. When you see the Apostle Paul say, "Fall asleep," you need to look at the context. Much of the time, when he says "Fall asleep," it means someone's died." It's a very Greek way of writing. It's a Greek way of, of euphemizing uh, death. OK, so listen, I'm telling you a mystery we will not all fall asleep but we will all be changed we'll all be changed 1st corinthians 15 there will be people who are reading that that will be alive whenever jesus returns in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be, clothed with, oh, must be clothed with immortality. Very good. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying in Isaiah 25 that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. All God's people said, one day, and we live knowing it could be today one day we who trust jesus will be changed will be permanently clothed in his righteousness who will be incorruptibly and immortally holy so look at how these work together look because we are justified by god's grace in our pedigree because we are promised glory uh, forever clothed in perfection it only makes sense that we should practice every day putting on christ This is who we are in heaven. This is who we're going to be forever. We ought to live that way now. So how are you going to do that? What's your plan? I have a friend who drops to his knees every morning, first thing, as soon as he wakes up. He rolls out of bed, he drops to the floor, and he stops right there, and he thinks on the cold floor for a moment, and he prays about how he is going to practically live clothed with Jesus that day and make no provision for the flesh. Some of our staff uh, practice a kind of thing called a quiet time. They call it chair time. It's about 15 minutes to start every day. They sit in a chair, and they read Scripture, and and they pray, and they think about all the reality of putting on Jesus all day with what I'm going to face today. You, you, You can develop your own practice, but I recommend doing something. Otherwise, your spiritual preparation is going to resemble this. Friends, let's wake up. Let's remember who we are and what time it is and how to act. And while we're awake, let's get dressed. Let's be clothed with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters, wherever they are. And I pray that we will remember that we are believers and that it is time to fight. And we'll know how to act. And while we're awake, Lord, I pray we will get dressed. Please, we are so exposed in so many idiotic ways. We are making provision for the flesh all the time, excusing our sin. It's absurd. It's as absurd as diving off a high chair. I pray that we will instead be clothed with Jesus, that we will look in your face, and that we will be engaged with what really matters. And Lord, speaking of what really matters, I pray for anyone, anyone studying with us today, wherever they may be, that has never believed in Jesus, I beg you to draw them to you right now. Friend, listen. Your your soul, just like mine, just like everyone's, Godet described it really well. That Frenchman was brilliant. It is the toilette. There is sin that makes us filthy. You know it, and I know it. Scripture declares it. But God loves you so much that Jesus came, the only one who could, and he paid the price. He took all that filth on himself so that those who trust him could have everlasting life. He rose from the dead so that we really could put on Jesus every day and know that we are permanently set in the seed of Abraham. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. Believe on him. Lord, I pray for these believers, new and old, and I beg you to continue to convict us so that we do not regret losses of reward later, but we wake up and act now.